Coming up on Tech Nation, the difference between nimble and bold thinking in challenging times and the fallacy of just making any decision. Fast Company's Jonas Sachs joins me to talk about the good version of unsafe thinking. Then on Tech Nation Health, better testing and better treatment for infections caused by bacteria. We'll talk about the development of faster testing to fight life-threatening sepsis in hospital settings and another approach to the number one skin disease, acne. Believe it or not, 50 million Americans suffer. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. While we can now decode the human genome, that would be anyone's human genome, and relatively cheaply, by the way, we often hear that as significant an accomplishment as that is, is akin to the value of having one telephone. Yep, if you had one and only one telephone and no one else did, then who are you going to call? Until the people that matter to you get telephones, and in the world, until everyone gets a telephone, your phone is just an interesting piece of tech. But today, with ubiquitous communications, if you're unreachable by phone, well, that would be a story. Also, the value of the telephone is about what you say on it, or these days, what you text on it, or it's transmitting photos or video. It's what you use it for. Why it matters relates to how it fits into your life or your work or whatever. That greater context and what we use it for defines and creates its value. Thus, no singular set of genetic data has much value. And even a whole lot of genetic data may have limited value. Sort of like if the only people with telephones didn't want to talk to each other. To be valuable, Genetic data has to be put into a greater context, and that's just what happened. New York Times journalist Carl Zimmer writes about a study published in the journal Science, where researchers at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine were able to look at 225,000 patients from Vanderbilt's huge electronic medical record system. These were the people who had signed up as volunteers for genetic research. Two major points should be made here. The genetics data was just part of it. The medical records themselves came from the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and all kinds of information was available. There were other tests, the treatments prescribed, the results, you name it. An entire context of data enveloped the genetic data that could now be decoded. The second point is perhaps the more telling for what is going on today. You go to the doctor, and whatever you have has to fit into the diagnostic disease parameters we have. These identified diseases are a product of last millennium science, and even then could not include a great swath of genetic data. But today, it's a whole new game. The researchers were surprised by what they found. 
diseases which normally require two copies of a defective gene to manifest themselves, that is both from mom and dad, so you have no working copy of the gene. But what if you had one copy that worked and one that didn't? Is it enough? You might not manifest identifiable symptoms for possibly decades, and by then, perhaps you'd need a liver or kidney transplant. You were limping along with some low-level symptoms, and nobody could put their finger on it. So let's genetically test everyone. The researchers certainly thought that in the long run, we should do exactly that. Decode the whole genome of everyone at birth. But is that realistic? Zimmer points out such a policy would create an unmanageable glut of genetic data. But that word unmanageable is in the present, with present-day technology. But look at it another way. It just defines the problem the engineers and computer scientists have to solve. And now that the problem is defined, they will. Just give it a little time. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, are you nimble? Are you quick? Or are you both smart and bold? Jonah Sachs joins me to talk about the good version of unsafe thinking. Then on Tech Nation Health, better testing and better treatment for infections caused by bacteria. We'll talk about urgent testing in order to treat life-threatening sepsis in hospital settings. And another approach in addressing the number one skin disease for 50 million Americans. Yes, it's acne. The first thought that struck me when I saw the name of Jonah Sachs' book, Unsafe Thinking, was why didn't he name it Running with Scissors? Yeah, you know, the title is intentionally provocative to get you a little bit uncomfortable. And that's really what the book is about. It's about getting uncomfortable. So it's not about just reaching for an idea that is the highest risk possible or doing something just to break things for the sake of it, but really challenging yourself to think and act in ways that just don't feel natural to you, perhaps. Because once you get into that rut of behavior and thinking, you know, that's what feels comfortable. But if the world's changing around you, you need to get into that kind of uncomfortable zone in order to actually change with it. So, uh, yeah, if you're always just tacking towards safety, that's actually dangerous. If you're moving towards things that feel unsafe to you personally, that's where new opportunity really lies. I remember a fairly new CEO of actually a very long-time, well-respected well-known government contractor in the tech business, tech and science business. And every time somebody came up with a new idea, he'd say, well, we'll just have to ask other people and determine best practices. And you know, I was just shaken to my core. We're trying to come up with something new. <laughs> and, you know, and so 
Number one, other people had to have thought of it. And number two, they had to have done it enough to come up with best practices. And I was like, how long are you going to be CEO of this? <laughs> <laughs> right, that, that's an example of just taking the safe route right over the edge of the cliff, for sure. Right. So w- what is safe thinking? Actually, there are characteristics of it. And you can identify whether that's the way you go or that isn't the way you go. Sure, yeah. Safe thinking is when we reach a new problem and then we try to apply all the models, the old models that we have to understand what the most uh, expedient and predictable path forward could possibly be. So, you know, we look to what our competitors are doing. We look to what worked, you know, when we founded the company 15 years ago. We look to the thing that no one could possibly criticize us for. And, you know, at every step of the way, there's something called the hill climbing heuristic, which means if you're trying to get to the top of a mountain, every step should be the most obvious step forward towards the top. But hill climbing has been shown time and again to lead to mediocrity and sort of stopping at the middle of the mountain. So at which point do you take that counterintuitive leap? At which point do you challenge yourself and your team to broaden your options? When we feel anxiety, our brains are programmed actually to pull for stereotypical solutions. That's how we get away from lions on the savanna in our ancient past. You know, you don't sit down and brainstorm new ideas. You just <laughs> yeah, run. That's right. <laughs> so that's how we're programmed to respond to changes, you know, just get to safe, safe shores. And then we tell ourselves, hey, later when we're a little more calm, we'll do something unsafe. But if we keep choosing that safe path, we're just always going to stay in that cycle where we know we need to change, but we never actually do. And this brings down companies. It brings down executives. And you know, it happens a lot when we get to a certain level of success, right? We, we succeed based on lessons from the past. We succeed on best practices. And so safe thinkers aren't usually at the bottom of the barrel. They're just kind of stuck in one mode, hoping to reach for a higher level and never quite getting there. And that can be deadly for, for larger companies or for startups that work. I'm also a professor at a university, and I was just a little shocked when I realized that all the higher level people at the high university, from the top down to, oh, I don't know, pretty far down, uh, they were all hired by committee. Yes, at the end of the day, one person finally makes the call. I guess what I'm asking about is when is consensus good and when is consensus sort of counterproductive? Yeah, in the generation and the exploration of new ideas, consensus is totally deadly. That's where, you know, you're you're looking for new possibilities and new openings, and the group is always going to tack either towards what the leader of the group has to say, uh, something called shared information bias, where, you know, the more that a leader speaks up, the more that everyone in the room tries to establish uh, some kind of higher status by saying the exact same thing the leader said in different words and even forgetting that they have new ideas. So a lot of groups are really just programmed to form consensus. It feels good. It creates agreeableness. Uh, But in that generation of ideas, we really want to move away from consensus and bring all the ideas to the surface. And then in choosing ideas, uh, groups can also create, just move toward the very safest. And, you know, good leadership is often about getting a lot from the group, but also making bold choices individually. I tell the story in the book about this firm, Brandios, who's revolutionized minor league baseball. And what they do is they'll go to a town, for instance, New Haven, and they'll ask for the whole city to suggest names. And they get like 6,000 names. They usually don't choose any of those names at all. They'll choose something completely counterintuitive and wacky. Like in in, uh, New Haven, they chose the Yard Goats. In uh, 
in El Paso, they chose the Chihuahuas, the Iron Pigs in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. These weird names that express that the Nobody kind of, liked and probably n- nobody wrote in. <laughs> nobody wrote them in and people deride and hate them and the clients almost fire them every time they do this. But in the end, it's like these weird local pride names that have some connection to the feeling of the city and to some of its history but are just so oddball that people realize, okay, we're not actually the San Jose Giants. We're not Major League Baseball. This is more spectacle than it is sport. And you get these funny offbeat names that people take a pride in. Now, those crowdsourcing of the ideas gives them a sense of what the town's all about and gives them a, a sense of the feeling. But they use a totally different approach to come up with the least obvious names they can. And then they wind up selling merchandise all around the country. The, the Iron Pigs have hats with a slab of bacon on it. It's one of the most, you know, it's one of the most popular minor league hats, not because it's obvious and cool, but because it's so weird and wacky and there's local pride that could be expressed through it. So that's an idea of how do you build consent, build ideas from wide-ranging inputs, but then take your own path even when everyone tells you you're wrong. And in truth, the yard goats really mean something cool in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, it refers to the old cars that used to pull trains along in the rail yards. Um, so if you're an insider in, in Hartford, you get it. If you're an outsider, you don't. Um, so this little thing is chugging around, pulling these big trains. And, and Hartford is a little bit of an outsider city. You know, it's a little bit of a uh, – yeah, so it, it, it's kind of got this – it's got this – feel of pride and localness that other names just didn't. And it's revived minor league baseball in a lot of ways, these kind of fun, offbeat names. On the other hand, you talk about not moving too quickly to consensus. What is what is that symptomatic of? Yeah, there is a inherent rush to judgment and action in business because part of safe thinking is It doesn't matter if we act correctly. We just need to act quickly in times of crisis. And that is, again, programmed into our biological DNA that some action is better than no action. Uh, I write about John Cleese, the Monty Python founder, who said that he would force himself to spend as much time in the open phase of generating ideas and playing with ideas, even though he would crunch his execution time down to almost nothing. And a lot of his stuff would be quite messy as a result, but it would always be more original. And so there's this... Rush to consensus is this feeling that we need to do something now. Take a, let's, let's take a provisional uh, approach and, you know, we'll adjust along the way. Well, the problem with taking a provisional uh, opinion on something is that our brains then are primed to defend that position. They do some, they've done some studies that are really interesting where if you ask a jury halfway through the trial, um, do you think this person's guilty or not? And they don't really have – they know they don't have enough evidence, but they make a provisional guess. They're going to stick to that guess in the face of all kinds of counter evidence simply because we attach our egos and our ideas to – and all of our vision basically to these early decisions that we make. So in a lot of ways, it does feel good to make an early decision and take action. But a lot of unsafe thinking is really about – resisting that attempt to move as quickly as possible and moving a little bit more thoughtfully because we could spend years solving the wrong problem and then look back and say, oh, why didn't we actually think about the bigger picture before we started acting? You want some really unsafe thinking? Do it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really yeah. unsafe. Yeah. Really unsafe. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Jonas Sachs. You may have seen, heard, or watched his work bringing the ideals of social change to digital media or known him from his column in Fast Company. He's here today with unsafe thinking, how to be nimble and bold when you need it most. Well, when do you need to be nimble and bold? You know, 
I think that we have this sense in all of our careers and in our companies where we're just not addressing the elephant in the room. You know, we're, we, we know that acting the same old way is not going to get us anywhere. So the idea is, you know, you don't need to be nimble and bold with your accounting every single day. That can lead to a disaster. You don't need to be nimble and bold when you're delivering a product that's working. But I think we all know when we're hitting that sort of level out point. It happened in my own career running an, an advertising agency I was my agency was growing based on all these ideas that I was sharing with the world about storytelling. Um, but as the more I became an expert, the more I was then creating a creative process that had to be followed by the letter, and that would deliver what I was sharing with the world. But being an expert also fixes us in thinking, and I could see that. I could see I had more answers than questions. I could see that I was just you know cookie cuttering cutting everything. And as a result, I knew my company was going to go off the rails, but it was so much easier to go every day to work and just keep pumping out a product that I knew was going to become obsolete. So we use unsafe thinking when we see that we have reached a, a plateau um, or there's some hypocrisy or problem in the business that we're just not reacting to. When we notice that change is more of a threat than an opportunity. I tell the story of CVS in the book where um, you know Helena Folks, a vice president in the company, was tasked with helping to define the corporate purpose. And she came up with something pretty bland about delivering health and wellness to communities, you know, of course, but then immediately started feeling this hypocrisy. We're selling $2 billion a year worth of cigarettes. Do we have to do this if we want to deliver health and wellness to communities? And can we live with this, you know, this sense that something's really wrong? The safe approach would be, of course, to say, it's $2 billion. What are you going to do about that? Forget about it. These people are going to do it anyway. That's part of it, too, right? <laughs> Even if we cut, they'll buy it elsewhere. But there's always rationales that come in. Always. So you can just get back to work, you know? And she said, no, I want to find a way. She's a cancer survivor. And she's like, I can feel this is eating our company from the inside. Everyone knows it's hypocrisy. Can we do something about it? But she didn't just appeal to people's hearts. She went and found a model by which they could make more money by not selling tobacco. And that's how she really won that, that fight. But first she had to you know, question this consensus that had gone over the entire industry that, of course, you know, pharmacies sell cigarettes. I mean, it makes no sense at all. But um, you know, it, takes a, it takes an unsafe thinker to actually question that cultural consensus that has, you know, that everyone lives by. And that's where enormous opportunity opportunity lies. It was the best thing CVS has done in the last five years from a business perspective. And what exactly did they do? So they made this big announcement that they'd no longer be selling tobacco. But uh, the ACA was just coming online, Obamacare. And there was this sense in the, the industry was changing so that new healthcare partnerships, these competitive big contracts were coming up and with, with big health care providers. And CVS won a huge number of them that they said they wouldn't have won if they hadn't differentiated themselves as the brand that was now truly standing for health care. So they credit $11 billion of new money that came in to the $2 billion that they lost from brand value and new partnerships. And so, again, I think that that is, again, a very big part of the unsafe way of thinking, which is not just to say, I'm going to be a protester within my organization and wave a flag that I know I'm going to lose this battle, but I'm going to say it's the wrong thing. And at least I tried. You know, this is actually going back and following that gut feeling that something could be better, but then using data and using smart business sense and building a team of allies. It's just a beautiful example of saying, I'm not going to stay between the two rails that we normally stay between, making money or doing the right thing. I'm going to see if there's a better way. And once she started asking that question, can we make more money not selling tobacco? The answer was fairly obvious, but nobody else saw it until they started thinking that way. 
Well, you break unsafe thinking into six parts, and and you broke the book into six parts, and I leapt right to the fifth one, morality. Your first example touches so many people. Um, It's about the first version of what we now call Gmail. This guy named Paul Buhait, he's the guy who made up the motto, don't be evil at, at Google. So he was a pretty moral guy. Um, and he's also a genius programmer. And he was wondering if, if uh, Google, they didn't have a mail program yet, could deliver 10 times or 100 times as much memory uh, and storage space as the leader Hotmail at the time. So he wanted to give a gigabyte of storage to every user. Sounds great. Why not? Uh, well, it's going to cost the company billions of dollars to provide all that storage. So he's toiling away. He knows how to build the product, but he doesn't know how to pay for it. And then he comes up with this idea. What if the email program reads your email and then serves up ads based on the emails you're receiving? If you keep <laughs> mentioning beer, it's going to show you ads for beer. Exactly. Now, it sounds a little creepy at first. And when he brought it to his boss, Marissa Meyer, she said, that's a terrible idea. Paul, don't do this. And Paul said, okay, boss, I'm not going to do it. He goes home that night and he does it. And he doesn't launch it to everyone in the world. He launches it to his boss's uh, clients, email clients. So Meyer gets up the next day. She comes in and there's an invitation to go uh, see Al Gore speak uh, about climate change. And now there's an ad for his book. And then somebody invites her to take a hike. And now there's some ads for hiking shoes. And she's like, this is creepy and weird, <laughs> but this is really useful. <laughs> he also uh, you know, launched it on Sergey Brin and Larry Page's email clients, and they thought it was pretty cool too. But as soon as they started talking about it to the world, you know, the press came down on them. You know, privacy uh, advocates came down on them. Uh, uh, elected officials told them this was going to sink their business. Uh, but they thought that they could actually change the people's sense of what's right and wrong, both, you know, Buhite broke the rules to make it. And then Google decided to try to break the rules of common sense to launch it. As soon as they did, of course, everyone wanted it. You know, now we look back in an age of internet privacy concerns, you know, it's not necessarily the right thing that they did, but it was incredibly innovative what they did and the public really embraced it. So I just use that example because I think that within organizations uh, and within any field you work in, Creativity is often about breaking the rules. If we follow the rules to a T, um, we're always going to come up with solutions that the rules allow for. And the best solutions often stand outside of that. Now, I'm not saying, and I've done a bunch of research on this about how it, what works and what doesn't, you know, undermining the company, undermining people around you by breaking rules can be very, very dangerous. Um, but people are constantly within organizations. We're finding better workarounds, not following the rules and then doing it for the good of the company. When you open up that conversation, you don't just tolerate those rule breakers, but you actually get them to articulate their dissent, talk about it, share stories of people who are finding better ways, and actually minimizing the number of rules in the company, you get this really nice dynamic of flexibility. I even write about this thing called intelligent disobedience, which is teaching people when they get an order to do something they don't agree with, not to go grumble and go off and try to secretly work around it, but to look their supervisor in the face and say, no, I'm not going to do that. In the military, it's starting to happen, um, which is amazing, so hierarchical. You um, will answer my (laughs) questions, Jonah. (laughs) No, I will not. (laughs) I'll answer the way I want to. (laughs) Um, And so this idea, if you can teach in your organization intelligent disobedience, you can actually stop this sort of us versus them mentality about rules and create a much more dynamic situation where there's much more creativity flowing. And then this idea about morality goes even deeper. Some of the most uh, limiting rules are the rules that we impose on ourselves. You know, this like what's right and what's wrong from a political or values perspective. And I found in the research I did for this book that um, 
collaborating with our enemies, the people who, who criticize us, who oppose us, that's where a lot of creative potential lies. Cognitively diverse groups tend to outperform cognitively similar groups on creativity tests. That means people with different backgrounds, values, moral beliefs, political beliefs. So a lot of those people you think are standing in your way, if you go out and meet them face-to-face -face and bring them into your process, uh, that also kind of breaks that sense of there's a right way and a wrong way, and it gets you to a more creative way. I was interested to see that at uh, Zen Zhang, a professor at Arizona State University, he determined, at least for male entrepreneurs, that a little brush with the authorities in youth was a great predictor of later success. It's like, hmm, little disobedience goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I think having a sense that there's something more important uh, and some higher purpose to your life than complying is a predictor of creativity. There's some interesting science that, so that shows that creative people tend to be more sociopathic. And that's probably, on the, that's, that's probably on the level of unsafety that I'm not pushing for. But I do think it's really important to be how do we break the rules in a pro-social way? How do we think about the good of the group and the good of the company and good of society and then go and find new solutions even if it breaks some you know, specific standard operating procedure? And that's what in some ways unsafe thinking is all about, getting away from standard operating procedure to something more productive. You also point out that this is not just about building new organizations or changing current organizations. Uh, it can also help solve serious societal problems. Let's talk about Jeffrey Brown and the Boston Miracle. Yeah, I love Jeffrey Brown's story, and I love talking to Jeffrey Brown because this is just a man who probably you would think would be on the more uh, right and wrong judgmental side of morality. He's a preacher who wanted to run a megachurch and be a, you know, a televangelist. But his first job was to go into a Boston neighborhood that had one of the highest murder rates in the city and in the country. So he gets there and he realizes his first work is not to build a megachurch, but his first work is to stop the violence where kids are dying basically on his doorstep. So his first thing is to think, I'm going to go and work with the at-risk youth. We've got these, you know, gangbangers and murderers out there, and they're just terrible for our community, but there's these youth who could go either way. I'm going to work with them. Well, the youth are not interested in working with Jeffrey Brown. He's a new <laughs> no. guy in town, and they're, you know, why go to church? Are you over 20? <laughs> yeah, Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one day, a young man dies right outside the church in the nighttime, and, and Brown realizes that he, he's not there when the killings are happening. So he goes out with a few friends and walks around on the streets. And what does he do? He encounters not the at-risk youth, but the over-the-edge youth who are now committing the murders. And he starts talking to them. And it's not a simple story of just realizing these kids' humanity because, because he does. He stops judging them and he starts to connect with them. But what he really realizes is these kids know how to solve the problems. They know exactly what they need. You know, school vacations are huge times where a lot of violence happens because the kids have nowhere to go. So they start creating places for them to go during school, during school breaks. Uh, they need entrepreneurial opportunities to make money by doing things other than selling drugs. He starts to connect them. This becomes part of what's called the Boston Miracle, in which Brown helps to bring down murder rates in his neighborhood by 60% um, in a very short time. Through all these counterintuitive approaches, but the most counterintuitive approach is talking to the enemies about what they need and then serving them as opposed to serving the kids who might fall into their hands. And um, I think it's just a beautiful example of how we think that we might be fighting against those other people over there, but really we're both fighting against some shared societal problem and working together is where the solution actually lies. Now, after hearing his story, I immediately um, – I've – 
always worked in progressive politics. And so I immediately ran over to the Fox News website to start getting some new ideas about what the other side's thinking and uh, found that didn't do much for me. I later learned that, that is, there's something called uh, the, the backlash effect, where when we read about the other side's point of view, we just come up with all the reasons that they're wrong. It takes actually sitting down with someone face to face and sharing life experience to start getting the benefits of that creativity of working with the enemy. So uh, just back and forth on Twitter or Facebook doesn't quite do it. In fact, it only further entrenches us in our non-creative moral surety. I've been speaking with Jonah Sachs, the author of Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, better testing and treatment for infections caused by bacteria from sepsis to acne. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Jonas Sachs, the author of Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Just back and forth on Twitter or Facebook doesn't quite do it. In fact, it only further entrenches us in our non-creative moral surety. So walk right up to Goliath and Hand him a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Maybe you got to sit down and have this little cup of coffee here, but let's do it. Let's talk. I like that, that image. Now, there are some people out there who are thinking, this is the last thing I need. I don't need any more conflict in my life. I don't need to do something which others might confront me about. What do you say to them? Yeah, I, I think that we don't need to always think about this in terms of confrontation with the outside world. Um, sometimes it's about confrontation with ourselves and about, okay, I've got this really, you know, I've been relying on my intuition for a long time. I've left that sort of data side off, you know, off to the side for, for a long time. Well, are there easy ways to start to become more analytical or vice versa? I'm so analytical, I don't listen to my intuition. Can I exercise that other side of myself? I've been an expert in this field for so long and that's where I feel comfortable. What can I 
expand outside of that field a little bit because the expert trap causes us to be blind the more that we spend time in one single pursuit. So, uh, yeah, I think in some ways a true unsafe thinker will move towards those ideas that puts them in conflict with, with the world who wants to be conservative. Um, but the first step, if you want to taste this without you know, getting your head bitten off, is to really confront yourself a little bit. Uh, I, I, I tell the story of Gandhi in the uh, book, which I thought was really um, inspiring just because he's one of the most bold innovators that you can imagine, right? He brought down the British Empire you know, uh, with a nonviolent approach, just amazing. And you think, well, this is the kind of guy who, who doesn't feel anxiety about stepping out. Turns out when he was a young man, he had so much social anxiety, he couldn't even utter a word in court as a young lawyer. He got laughed out of a courtroom uh, because he couldn't even open his mouth. And he fled to South Africa. He tried to play it small there, too, until one day he was on a train and he gets kicked off for, for not being in the right seat in, in apartheid South Africa. He calls that the most creative incident in his life because he decides in that moment, freezing on this mountain platform, no trains around, that he's going to start moving towards the things that make him anxious as opposed to always retreating from them. Because every time he retreats, his life gets smaller and his anxiety even increases. And so, you know, that's the first step for Gandhi, not in not feeling fear, but in moving towards fear. And that's one of the big findings of the book is that, you know, fear is fuel for creativity. It's, it's, we can't stop feeling it, but if we reframe it, not as something to be avoided, but be something to be explored and played with, um, that's how the best innovators create change. I remember a gal who... I used to go to to a therapist every week, and she made a. She told people about it. You know, oh, it's four o'clock. I got to get going. I'm going to my therapist. You know, it's like she might as well say, "I'm going to go work out at the gym." It was like no secret. And um, somebody was asking her about, "You're so enthusiastic about going to the therapist. This must be great. Who do you go to? You know, there." And she goes, "Well, it might not be for you." And uh, she says, "The reason is, is when I put my hand on the doorknob to go in." I say to myself, okay, what don't you want to talk about? Mm. <laughs> and it's that facing yourself that, you know, that that will bring up some really interesting conversations for which these are problems for which you might have solutions. But unless you recognize them as a problem, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, that's definitely the first step for sure. And that in itself is unsafe. To In this world that's making so many demands on us, you know, running companies, trying to move up in companies, building new products and new things in a world that's moving so quickly, to admit that we do need to take a step back sometimes and, and look at ourselves and think about the way that we think, it's scary. But uh, if we don't ever do that, we're going to wind up kind of ossifying and just staying in one lane while that lane you know, peters into almost nothing. In terms of our children... Raising our children, the traits of highly creative students are nonconformist, determined, individualistic, progressive. Uh, the traits of low creative students, well, you know who they are. They're teachers' pets. So here you have your child. You're trying to raise him or her the best you can. You want them to be creative. <laughs> it can work against you. What do you, what do you do? What do you th what are you thinking in this regard? Oh yeah, I mean I quote this study in <laughs> that that says that you ask teachers how important is it to teach creativity in the classroom. They'll say it's the number one thing to teach. But then if you ask them what's your favorite student, who's your favorite student, who's your least favorite student, they're going to pick the least creative kid as the favorite, you know, compliant, predictable, all those things. It's a real conundrum as a parent. I'm raising two kids. They're, they're 10 and 8. We want them to... Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we want them to sort of have a smooth path through life. But the creative path is, is not the smooth path. We want to teach them to be moral and upstanding people, but also to learn how to resist 
um, rules and regulations that are really wrong for them. And so one thing I found in the book is that measures of success uh, really guide a company or, or our own lives. You know, what are we measuring and what are we moving toward? And I would say that if you are raising kids and the measure of success is always grades, accomplishments, achievements, uh, thumbs up from the authorities, uh, uh, you know, thumbs up from the authorities around them, uh, you're going to be teaching compliance and not necessarily creativity. Um, when you reward in the home, um, intelligent risk, you know, moving into areas uh, where they're no longer, um, you know, confident, trying new things. You know, I, my kids are really each good at one sport. They love that one sport. Pulling them out of those sports and trying something that, where they're really bad is hard, but that's where all the learning happens. So um, I think we all are hoping to sort of stay in our lane and be told that we're good enough. And with kids, it's not about sort of telling them that they're good enough. It's telling them that they're good enough to try everything and to fail and to, um, to explore and to f- start to listen to that internal compass because a lot of people will tell them what's right and what's wrong, and they sort of start to need at a pretty young age to determine for, their, for themselves what's right and wrong. In fact, you write, you've got to reward the non-obvious. Yeah. That they're coming up with things that aren't obvious. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I talked to the coach of the Golden State Warriors for this book, Steve Kerr, and he said, you know, he, he came to the Warriors when they were a pretty strong team, but they were underperforming. And it's so obvious to reward putting the ball in the basket or passing it to a guy who puts the ball in the basket. But he saw that they were last in the league in passes, and they were last in the league in a lot of the kind of the intangibles, or they were low in the league in a lot of the intangibles. So he started counting completely different things. He says the game's going to be a success if we get this number of passes. That's all I care about. And he also created this sense of psychological safety in the locker room that didn't exist under all the pressure of being in the NBA and said, you know, while we're in the locker room, we're going to show that we love each other, that we all belong here, that we're, this is not about basketball, this is about a community. When we get out there, we're going to go out and take those risks to work as a team, and I'm going to be rewarding, you know, your contributions in ways that you've never been rewarded before um, by the obvious statistics. And it worked amazingly. You know, he says this is a big part of his success uh, in turning the team around and all the success he's had. And he told me that it came from a personal experience of his. This is my favorite part of the story. He was one of the best shooters in the NBA, one of the best three-point shooters of all time. But for some reason, he felt he didn't belong in the NBA. And he wasn't really that good. He had all this anxiety. And he would always pass up the big shots. And that worked well because he was on a team with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen who, you know, could hit the shots for him. And then one day, Michael Jordan had the flu in the finals, game six, and he had to take the big shot. He hits it, and he realizes, hey, I belong here. He, got that, he built that sense of psychological safety for himself that he needed to then go out and be a, you know, a gunslinger on the court. But now he realizes that it was such a waste of part of his career to not do that and maybe not having the right coaches um, to guide him or to talk to him about psychological safety is what held him back. So for him... Being a coach is not about yelling and screaming and amping up the pressure in the same way we shouldn't with our kids, but of giving them that psychological safety, that making them feel safe enough to get unsafe. And um, yeah, I, I, I aim to parent my kids that way too. You know, have that locker room, that protected space where there's not pressure so that they can go out into the world into high pressure situations and feel comfortable taking risks, sometimes failing and, and growing their approaches. Well, this has been terrific, Joan. I hope you'll come back see us again. I'd love to. Thanks, Maura. My guest today is Jonah Sachs. The book is On Safe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. It's published by DeCapo, an imprint of Perseus. I'm Maura Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. 
Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today we're talking about better testing and better treatment for infections caused by bacteria, especially important since the old days of prescribing broad-spectrum antibiotics are gone. The bacteria are getting smarter and antibiotic resistance is on the rise. First, we'll look at the number one reason behind death in hospital settings, independent of what the patient may have been admitted for. It's called sepsis, and it's caused by a variety of bacteria. The problem, which ones and which antibiotics? After that, we look at the number one most common skin disease in the United States, affecting 50 million Americans. This disease can be traced to a single bacteria, and you know this condition by the name acne. Nearly half of all hospital deaths are caused by a condition called sepsis. Dr. Tom Lowry is the chief scientific officer of T2 Biosystems. I asked him, what is sepsis? Sepsis is a, is a tragic situation here in the United States today, uh, as you mentioned, due to the large number of people that suffer from this, uh, that either acquire it in the hospital or acquire it before they uh, enter the hospital. Sepsis is an immune response that our body has to a, an infection, and a bloodstream infection most typically, and our immune system tries to fight off the infection, and if it leads to severe sepsis, that leads to organ failure and, and complete shutdown of the, of the human body. So it's a huge challenge right now because diagnosing sepsis is so difficult. And so to appropriately treat sepsis, one needs to know what the causative infectious agent is. Now, how do you know that a person is developing sepsis? Is that something that you can tell right away, or do you have to exhibit some pretty advanced symptoms first? Mm -hmm. So there's some pretty general symptoms that have to do with uh, heart rate and, and respiratory rate and, and, and temperature that can be used to uh, determine if a patient's at risk for sepsis. But actually a confirming that they have sepsis requires uh, testing. And so there's a large set of patients that are at risk for sepsis in hospitals today. Today they're subjected to blood testing that's typically a blood culture. Uh, to determine if they have an infectious agent in them. So these alerts will, f will come up for physicians, say this patient's at risk for sepsis. There's a lot of algorithms and predictive models currently in use in hospitals to help screen and identify these patients that are at risk early. But the challenge is, is that knowing that a patient's at risk is very different than knowing what therapy to use to kill the infection and stop the progression of sepsis. And it's that diagnostic challenge that uh, is a major focus in the United States today. What kind of tests do they do today and how fast does it come back? Yeah, so this is what's really surprising is the standard test that's done today is the same test that's been done for decades and decades. That's drawing rather large volumes of blood and then growing that blood, seeing if that blood will grow pathogens or organisms from it and waiting. Sometimes it grows within a day, sometimes it takes three, four, five days. And so they'll come back to the patient and draw multiple blood draws in these things that are called blood cultures. And they'll take these uh, vials of blood and incubate them while shaking and, and see if something grows. And if something grows, then they know, okay, there's an infectious pathogen in the patient. But they're basically relying on 
growth of the organism, which has been the standard of care for decades and decades. Now, what did T2 Biosystems do? So what we did at T2 Biosystems is we, we really said we shouldn't have to depend on growth uh, for detection of these pathogens in blood. We should be able to go and detect it directly from the bloodstream. Now, diagnostic companies have been trying to do this for decades unsuccessfully, primarily due to the sensitivity requirements. There's just very, very small amounts of these pathogens in your blood uh, as a patient can cause you to be infectious. And so we do direct from blood detection, and we've been able to uh, have the adequate sensitivity and specificity to deliver quality results without waiting for that blood culture. Okay, what do you do? Okay. So what do we do? Yeah, don't stop there. You got <laughs> us now. What do you do? <laughs> so, so what we do is we take a, a, a single vacutainer of blood, a very small amount, just a little, little over a teaspoon of blood, uh, and then uh, that sample gets processed on an automated instrument. And our instrument uses nanotechnology and magnetic resonance detection to then uh, query whether or not there's any pathogens in there. So if there's just a few cells of pathogens in that, in that blood sample, down to one cell per milliliter, if that's present, our test will light up positive. And so it's fully automated. The, the laboratory doesn't have to do any, any sophisticated sample manipulation. And it's just within about three to five hours the result comes out. And so within that time window, they have an answer instead of having to wait for multiple days. So you're looking cell by cell. What are you looking at? Yeah, so what we actually look at is we're looking at the, for the presence of DNA in these pathogen cells. So we use that DNA as a signature to allow us to know that there's a pathogen cell in the blood sample. So it's what kind of bacteria is in that exactly. cell. So if you actually have in your blood sample Staph aureus, for example, which is a common bloodstream pathogen, uh, then uh, our tests will detect that there is Staph aureus. And that information, that, that identification of that species is important for the physicians to make a decision about the therapy. As soon as they know, okay, my patient's suffering from a, a bloodstream infection of Staph aureus, they know exactly what therapy to, to put the patient on. And so before that, it's like, well, let's try this antibiotic. Let's try this antibiotic. And so you're searching all around, not knowing, hoping you're getting the right treatment. That's right. That's right. Now, I understand that Huntsville Hospital in Huntsville, Alabama, that they had uh, a recent uh, experiment. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Huntsville Hospital uh, went live with our T2 Canada test, uh, which was our first uh, test that was FDA cleared a few years ago. And they've been implementing that and using it clinically. For candida. For candida, which is a, a type of bloodstream infection and that can also lead to sepsis, just like uh, bacteremia and the bacterial pathogens that our new panel detect. And they've seen a significant uh, improvement in their use of the antimicrobials that treat the, that type of sepsis and that type of infection. So that they're actually using the test to identify patients much more rapidly and earlier, get them on the appropriate therapy, but also to avoid putting patients on therapy when they don't need to be put on those therapies, which reduces hospital cost, helps deal with the antimicrobial resistance problem we have because the more you use antimicrobials unnecessarily, the less effective they become. One thing that occurs to me is if we're talking about bacteria and you're in a hospital setting, no matter how careful you are, bacteria jumps from people to equipment to other people to who knows what going around. It's like the less bacteria there is, the better. That's right. And that's one of the frightening things about our healthcare system today is these organisms seem to have adapted to be able to be transmitted in a hospital environment very readily. 
and some of them actually much easier than other organisms. So that's a big focus for uses like test of, like ours is to identify those patients quickly, get them on therapy quickly so that they don't become a source for spreading that infection uh, throughout the hospital system. One other thing about the Huntsville study is that it demonstrated, uh, like other studies have, is that with the T2-based test, uh, more patients were detected than by the standard blood culture method. So of the 300 patients that were in their study, they showed that there were 26 cases that were missed by blood culture, gone undetected, that were detected by T2 Canada that they considered confirmed uh, infections. That's important that these patients actually get not only rapid information, but get the actual results that show that they really have an infection to inform the physicians of appropriate treatment that takes out the guesswork in such an important life versus death decision. Well, I, I have to say that we've all been to the doctor or had friends or family with the doctor, and they say, oh, the test came back negative. Let's move on to something else. And it's like if it turned out, it just means that the test didn't detect it. It did not mean that it wasn't present. Yeah, and one, one uh, sort of analogy I like to use to bring this home is that many of us are familiar with the importance of appropriate cancer diagnostics, that when you have a loved one that suffers from cancer, you get the exact cancer characterized so that you get the exact appropriate treatment. Today, in the world of bloodstream infections and sepsis, that isn't happening fast enough, that the infections are moving too fast, and the, the clinicians are forced to use what's called empiric therapy to take their best judgment to get the patients on the right therapy. None of us would tolerate that for our loved one who may be suffering from cancer. We want to know that they're on the exact right drug in time. And I think it's time as, as a community and in the healthcare system that we expect that for bloodstream infections and sepsis because it, it has even a more dramatic impact on, on people. There are more people dying due to sepsis and bloodstream infections than AIDS, prostate cancer, and breast cancer combined. Now, you're the chief scientific officer. What do you do all day? What does that mean? You're constantly thinking. You're constantly looking. What does that mean at T2 Biosystems? T2 Biosystems, what it means, it's, it's really exciting because I, I get to be involved in a lot of the uh, clinical studies and customer studies uh, where people are looking at the impact of these tests clinically in patients, as well as I'm very involved in the pipeline of tests that we're developing. We have even more of, tests. Even more tests, and uh, which are aimed to help provide new information more rapidly and more sensitively in the area of bloodstream infections and sepsis, as well as in other areas like Lyme disease. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I hope you come back and see us again. You bet. My pleasure. Dr. Tom Lowry is the Chief Scientific Officer of T2 Biosystems. More information is available at t2biosystems.com. That's the letter T, the number 2, and then biosystems, t2biosystems.com. Acne is the most common skin disorder in the United States. I asked David Domzalski, CEO of Fomix Pharmaceuticals, how prevalent is it? Acne is uh, the most common uh, disorder, skin disorder, in the United States. It affects about 50 million people uh, in this country alone. Uh, the prevalence is primarily uh, you know, uh, older uh, adolescents, teens through young adulthood. So somewhere in the early teens through your early 20s is where you see the most amount of acne. What causes it? 
Well, acting itself, uh, it's no completely well-defined uh, cause of it, but it's primarily a both a bacterial condition uh, and also an inflammation of the skin. So there's there's a bug uh, that needs to be killed. It's called piacnus. Uh, so that's the bacteria. And then it's also an inflammation of the skin, where that's where you get the, the redness, uh, probably the parts that are most unsightly with acne. And so the, the objective is to try to address both uh, of those causes uh, behind acne. My students that, that have had very severe uh, acne, they've finally resorted to Accutane, which is a pill, and apparently it has very severe side effects. No, correct. So Accutane is is uh, an effective uh, product to treat. Highly effective. Highly effective. Uh, but it's reserved for your most severe uh, acne cases, what they would call you know nodular or cystic acne. So, um, but it does. It is associated with a lot of significant side effects. Uh, requires routine testing, uh, liver monitoring. Um, demonstration of contraception uh, if you're a female taking uh, these drugs. So very effective, but uh, also uh, you know, far- fairly toxic at times and requires a significant monitoring of uh, some potentially rough side effects. What we're doing at Fomix is we're developing a topical antibiotic. Uh, the product is minocycline. Uh, minocycline is the gold standard in treating acne. Uh, and this wouldn't uh, be for patients that have more mild or moderate, uh, moderate to severe acne. And we're not talking about the patients that would be candidates, say, for Accutane. So uh, when you think about how patients with acne are treated today, uh, other than those that get Accutane, uh, they get topical therapies and they also get oral antibiotics. And oral antibiotics such as minocycline uh, are very, very effective and very common. However, these products are associated with uh, significant side effects as well. Uh, different from those of uh, Accutane, side effects such as headaches, dizziness, uh, nausea, upset stomach, uh, what they call photosensitivity, which could be a really bad sunburn uh, if you're exposed to light. Uh, so although these products are effective, uh, they're uh, littered with some significant side effects. To date, the, this antibiotic, minocycline, uh, is only available through an oral route of administration. You can only get it by a pill. If you could develop a topical formulation, uh, the chances are that you could significantly reduce those side effects. And that's what we're doing at Fomix is uh, we are developing a topical minocycline product. It's in a foam formulation, and uh, we're currently in phase three studies. Uh, we've so far have had over 1,000 patients uh, be studied with this particular product. Uh, and if approved, we believe we would be the first topical minocycline product to treat acne uh, that would be available in the United States. Now, you're going through clinical trials. I mean, it's just laying on top of your skin. Why do you have to go through clinical trials? Sure. Well, you know, we're, we're dealing with a what would be a prescription-based medicine, and, and uh, we have to go through the highest standards to ultimately get the product approved by the FDA. Um, the studies that we have, uh, patients are taking this product once a day, and they're tested uh, either with the active product or with uh, what would be placebo. And uh, the patients take it once a day for 12 weeks, and then ultimately we'll get the results after that. To date, what we've seen in the studies that we've completed is that over 40% or patients have achieved over 40% reduction in the number of pimples uh, that they have, or what they call lesions, uh, over the course of a 12-week time period. So, uh, And we've also seen that helps. That, that helps quite a bit. So if you figure after uh, three months of therapy, if you've actually reduced the number of pimples that are on your, your face, the what we call inflammatory lesions, by over 40%, 
we believe that's pretty impressive. We've also seen, even though these studies are 12 weeks in duration, we've seen the effect as early as three weeks. Uh, and we've seen that continue to grow over the course of time. And so for patients, you know, your, your teenagers uh, that uh, have, have acne, you know, they want to see results and they want to see it fast. And if you can get results uh, that are meaningful in as, in as little as a few weeks and you can carry that out over the course of time, we believe that that could be really beneficial to the patient and obviously also to the, to the caregiver, the healthcare provider as well. Do you have the same concerns about antibiotic resistance with a topical cream as you do with a pill that you would ingest? So obviously we're always going to monitor this, uh, you know, this whole issue about antibiotic resistance, and we take this very seriously. Um, but when you take a look at the literature, again, a product such as minocycline is associated uh, with the least amount of resistance. So if, you, if you take a look at what's uh, out there in, in the literature and in the journals, um, also, again, most of the issues around resistance are associated with oral therapies. And, and the reason is, is that in, in your gut, if you will, you have good bacteria and you have bad bacteria. And when you take antibiotics orally, uh, part of the issue is you're not only addressing the bad bacteria, but you're also at times killing the good bacteria. By delivering the, our, our ideas that if we can deliver this product, minocycline, in a foam formulation and actually deliver it into the skin, which is where the acne resides, that's, that's the issue. It's lying in your skin. If you can deliver it right into the skin, uh, we believe that we can reduce the side effects uh, that are associated with it and potentially not have some of the resistance issues that are associated with a lot of these oral therapies. Okay, everything goes swell. You get those thousands of teenagers on the clinical trial to cooperate, and you're able to get, you know, improvement. How soon could it be on the market? Well, we're right in the middle of, uh, again, of our uh, third phase three study. Uh, we this is your third this phase is third three, so phase you're, three. you're getting close to the end here. We're, we're getting close. Uh, we will have top-line results from uh, that study in the third quarter of this year. Uh, and our plans are, if all goes well, that we would be in a position to submit what we call a new drug application to the FDA by the end of the year with the hope that it could be available on the market uh, around a year from, from there. So perhaps by the, the end of next year, if all goes well, we might have a product for patients. Busy times for you. Busy times for us. David, thank you so much for coming in. Please come back. See us again. Thanks so much. My pleasure. David Domzalski is the CEO of Fomix Pharmaceuticals. More information is available at fomix.com. That's F-O-A-M, foam, I-X, fomix.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.